I'm Dr. Ralph Ford, Chancellor of Penn State Barron, and you are listening to Barron Talks. My guest today is Dr. David Kale, Professor of Communication and Chair of our Communication Program here at Penn State Barron, which is housed in the School of Humanities and Social Sciences. So welcome to the show, David. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Well, we, I'm just going to run through your bio, and then uh, we'll get to the, the questions. Uh, you hold a PhD in communication from North Dakota State University, where it's really cold, a graduate college teaching certificate also from North Dakota State, and a bachelor's degree in economics from uh, Concordia. Uh, you are the author of more than 40 journal articles and book publications, and have given nearly 100 conference presentations. You are editor of the journal Communication Teacher, a peer-reviewed publication, and uh, you co-edited a 2021 book called Pedagogies of Post-Truth, and uh, we want to talk about post-truth today and what that means. And uh, you are also uh, recently promoted uh, full professor, I believe, as well. So congratulations on that. That's right. Thank you very much. It's uh, definitely exciting and an honor. Well, great set of achievements and uh, well-deserved. So tell us, how did you end up here at Penn State Barron? What was your path here? Yes. Yeah, so my background coming from Minnesota I finished my PhD at, at North Dakota State, and one thing about the PhD program at North Dakota State, it was a, definitely a very rigorous program, very much focused on the connections between research and teaching, and so we had a very heavy publication requirement as graduate students. We were challenged to publish a lot in, in, in high-level peer-reviewed journals. Mm -hmm. We also were prepared very well for the classroom. So we had a really strong pedagogical background. So when I looked for a, a position, I wanted to be something that emulated that. I wanted a position in a, in a university that valued research, in which research was uh, a, a priority. In addition, uh, an institution that valued teaching. And when I interviewed at Penn State Barron, when I, when I looked at the job announcement, all of those types of things, I realized very quickly that this was a type of place that really balanced teaching and research. And I really think research benefits teaching and, and vice versa. And so it's been a very great, uh, really excellent fit for me since 2009 when I, when I came here. Wow. And, you know, it's, uh, we really are a unique place. And I think that uh, it's not always well understood until you're here. And you had that experience in graduate school at North Dakota State. So did you teach a number of courses? Were you required to do that as a Ph.D. student? Candidate? Yes, I was a GTA, a graduate teaching assistant. So we were responsible for two, yeah, two courses per semester as graduate students. We had a, an extensive teacher training program, so it was really, really excellent. And uh, we started teaching upper-level classes and a, a number of different things. So we were the instructor of record for a, a number of courses. So really got a lot of pedagogical experience firsthand as an undergraduate. Same. As a, I'm sorry, as a, as a graduate student. As a graduate student, student no yes. problem. So did you have the same uh, advisor? I'm just curious as well throughout your uh, master's and Ph.D. program? And well, what happened is, so I started as a master's student as, and was accepted into, as a direct entry doctorate student. I was accepted into a, a special program. So I did the, both programs concurrently. Oh, great. Which was a, a really wow. great experience and a great honor, actually. My doctoral advisor, who I'm still very close with, left for another university during the part of my program, sort of right before my dissertation. And so I moved over to a different advisor, but um, it was a you know great experience. And, and it was nice having experience with different faculty as well. 
Well, it worked out, and that's not an, always an easy transition. But you also, when you were an undergraduate, you studied economics. And uh, economists are some of my favorite people to talk to. So interesting and a different way of looking at the world. So what did you learn in, in economics? I was really drawn to economics for a number of, of reasons. I was really interested in, in the economy. I was interested in economic theory. I was interested in sort of how the economic world works, microeconomics, macroeconomics, those types of things. Also, kind of a, an aside or a funny story, both of my parents are educators, and so I think I was drawn to something True. different maybe than, than they were, although later realizing that I was really adept at, at the teaching aspect as well. But anyway, I, I was really interested in that, and so I, I studied it, and I went to a small liberal arts college, which really put emphasis on a, a holistic picture of education. So I definitely studied economics. I had a minor in business. But I also studied a lot of different courses, you know, across campus, which I was really able to tie in, including communication, which I later moved into in my graduate studies. But it was a, a really great experience and something that I draw on now in my research in communication. So when did you figure out that uh, you wanted to be a teacher? Right, right, right. So I, I finished my degree, and I worked for a short time in banking. I worked in, in financial advising for a period of time. And I, I just always, in the back of my mind, had the idea that I was, I was still interested in teaching. My parents, I grew up hearing about pedagogical strategies. My dad was an elementary principal. My mom was a, an English teacher. Both of them were authors. Both of them, my mom wrote the curriculum for the, for the state of Minnesota. They, were, they did a, a myriad of things. And I was always in that educational realm. Mm -hmm. And so I, I realized, you know, I, I wanted to teach. I wanted to be in that area. And I was really interested in communication as well. Those were courses I took as an undergraduate and really interested in the meaning of messages. That's what communication is broadly as a discipline. So I thought that there was a way that I could marry economics and the study of communication. And, and I, there was happened to be this really, really excellent PhD, master's and then PhD program at North Dakota State. And it really worked out quite well for me. It was a nice, really a smooth transition into graduate studies in that area. Well, you are now the chair of our communication program here at Behrend. And uh, it's a program with a lot of great history. It's been here uh, quite some time. Many graduates have gone on to do wonderful things. There's a lot you can do in the communication program. So why don't we take some time and talk about what are you trying to achieve in the communication program? What are the opportunities? You know, sell us. Why should somebody study communication? It's so so darn important. Communication is, is so important, and it's foundational to what we do as people, right, as, as people living in a civilization. There's a, a mantra, one cannot not communicate, you know, to use the, the double negative, but it's a, it's a well-known mantra. Our students, the beauty of a communication degree is that you can do a myriad of things with it. Some people go into more traditional types of communication fields like radio, TV, newspaper, and we have all of those facilities on campus. All of those, our students do a lot of that, that type of work. Other students go into more other types of, of fields as well. They, they go into business type of employment. They go into event planning. They go into mm -hmm. social media. They go into digital journalism. There's so many different opportunities that a communication degree can provide. And so 
We really want to give our students an applied experience so that they learn theory, they learn content, they learn a lot of things inherent in a communication degree, but also they get that applied experience so that they can go to employers and, and have really beneficial experiences that, that can be applied to, to the workforce. So you've made the statement, and I've heard you say it, uh, you want our students to be deep generalists. What do you mean by that? Yes. A deep generalist is, is someone who has a breadth of knowledge. So that's, that's the, the generalist part. We, we want our students to have a breadth of knowledge across the discipline of communication. So what that means in our program, we are really fortunate in the fact that we are able to offer COM courses, which, which are those that generate from the, the College of Communication. These are courses that are in mass communication. So it's anything dealing with TV, radio, journalism, digital media, anything that affects a mass audience. We also offer CAS courses, which are communication arts and sciences courses. Those are the ones that are on the speech communication realm. So we teach, and those are often the courses that I teach. Mm -hmm. Those are courses that relate to interpersonal communication, small group communication, public speaking business and professional communication, corporate communication. So our students get a, a, a general perspective all across the discipline. And then at the same time, we realize that employers want areas of specialty as well. So we want to give them, and that's the, the, the deep portion, right? So we have right. the generalist portion, we have the, the, the deep generalist portion. So what we ask students to do in our major is work through two areas of specialty, if you will, or two concentrations. So we have three of them that, that they can choose from. Communication studies, which is a sort of a corporate communication mm -hmm. type track. There's a strategic communication area and a journalism slash media production track. And so students take courses and, and pretty soon, quickly in the program, early in the program, they decide which things really appeal to them. And then what, what that allows them to do is go to an employer and say, not only do I have a breadth of knowledge in the discipline of communication, but I also have depth and I have specific knowledge in two specific areas. And, and that's really beneficial to them and to their work in their careers. Well, you, you and I have discussed a lot, uh, by the way, over at lunch at Bruno's, we tend to run into each other quite a bit. You know, we've got this philosophy of the open laboratory here at Barron, which really means we want our students working on projects, if we can, connected to the outside world. So what's that look like in, in your major, in communication? Yes. So we, first of all, give students a lot of applied experiences in our major. So they can, they can work in the TV studio. They can write for the Baron Beacon. They can work for BVZ Radio and have their own radio shows and all of these kinds of things. So it's very applied experience there. In addition... The vast majority of our students engage in internships towards mm -hmm. the end of their time here at, at Penn State Barron. And so we have an internship coordinator, and we set them up with interns, with internships in the community or beyond that. Some students may be from other states. We've had students work in California. We've had students work in a, a myriad of, of places. And they are paired with sometimes their internships that they choose. Sometimes our coordinator helps them to choose an internship that really fits well with what they want to do in their career. And they apply their knowledge. You mm -hmm. know, that's what we want them to do. They apply their coursework that they've taken here in, at Penn State Barron. 
they apply it to their internship, they gain a breadth of experience in their internship, and, and they can apply it. You know, the thing about the, the internships, and you've seen this, is you, know, you see a student go out and they don't have as much confidence, there, but they come back, and boy, it changes, right? You can see the change after a summer. And like you say, they have to go live in California. We got a, it's, we're Penn State University. You know, we're known all over the place. So that really makes a difference, and you can see it, can't you? You really can, and, and they're accountable to their internship coordinators or the business or the corporation, whomever it is they work for. And they're accountable, and they learn that that accountability is so important. And so they're very dedicated to their internships, and they grow a lot through them. And a lot of them have resulted in, in careers afterward in that very organization. You know, you're, you're in the School of Humanities and Social Sciences, and uh, clearly our school that maintains our liberal arts tradition here on campus. And you're preparing students to be engaged citizens of the world. Why is that so important today? Yeah, I, I think that phrase is so important, being engaged citizens of the world. And, and that's something that a university education broadly should prepare students for. And I think the School of Humanities and Social Sciences specifically does that. When students take courses in communication or in history or in education or in philosophy or you know whatever course it will be, whatever area of study that course is in, they gain a, a breadth of knowledge. You know, we don't want, I think any university doesn't want a student to just choose a major and just sort of silo themselves mm-hmm. into and, and sort of pigeonhole themselves into one specific thing. Of course they're majoring in something. Of course they're getting a specific degree. But we want them to be well-rounded people who can really interact in society. And that's what courses like that allow you to do. And you, you begin as you get older, too, I think. You see connections between, you know, when I'm doing research, when I'm reading about something, I often wonder, okay, so what is our economic situation today? How did people think about that in the past? And that's where history comes in. Or, you know, how, how did people argue for this? Or how did people think about this in the past? And that's where philosophy comes in or, or communication or other disciplines. And so when you can draw on so many areas of knowledge, I think you just become a more well-rounded person, a person who can really engage in society and really understand why we do the things we do and maybe how we can make changes based on those things as well. Well, in your very name of the school, Humanities, you know, we are humans and it's about the human experience. And uh, young people may take that for granted, but the very fact that we can communicate with each other with the complexity that we have sets us apart from other species. I don't mean to give you a lecture on it, but it's, it's really significant to understand that. And ultimately, we go out and we work with other people, and uh, no matter what it is. So learning all of those things, applying them, makes a huge difference. Absolutely, absolutely. That's some of the work that I do, too, you know, in my area of communication, is, is understanding how do we better make people engaged citizens of the world. And that's ultimately what we're trying to do. Well, let's switch to this, you know, some of the techniques you use in the classroom. I think you're very attentive to this idea of the power dynamic in a classroom. So tell us what that means, you know, how do you think about that, and how do you address it in your teaching? Yeah, I'll give a a brief overview, and this kind of leads into some of my research, and my research informs my teaching in a lot of ways. So my philosophy, my research is in the area of critical communication pedagogy. And the, the, the father of that, if you will, is someone named Paulo Freire, who, who developed critical pedagogy. 
Critical pedagogy is the idea that there's power present in our society. There's power present in the classroom. The instructor, the teacher, the professor holds power. And sure. students are often in a traditional mode of education, at least, seen as kind of passive vessels who are just supposed to sit there and just receive this, this knowledge. And he calls it the banking concept of education. Very much like you go into a bank and you make a deposit to you, know, you give the teller your, your money or whatever. We deposit knowledge in students' heads and they just kind of are supposed to regurgitate it, memorize it on a test, and, and just they ultimately forget it. Mm-hmm. That's not effective pedagogy. Not that we don't lecture sometimes, not that we shouldn't present students with information, but we want them to dialogue about that information. We want to give them learning opportunities by which they can get together with each other, they can dissect ideas, they can critique ideas, they can become better informed about ideas when they have an opportunity to dialogue. And so it's that dialogic interaction between and among students and with the professor, with the faculty member, um, creates a much more dynamic and ultimately fosters learning, cognitive learning more effectively, and affective learning, which is a desire to learn, rather than just kind of sitting passively, these being sort of passive vessels in the classroom. We want them to be active learners and active participants in their education. Yeah, and it's hard to do, but once they start asking you questions, then you probably know you're, you, you know, you're on the right track and challenging maybe what you've said. Absolutely. I mean, as, as an instructor, you have to be willing. Of course, you're a subject matter expert, but that doesn't mean you aren't willing to, and you have to be willing to learn from your students as well. And so I think that's a, the, really the type of classroom dynamic that, that you, you really want to foster. So, David, what adjustments do you make to encourage students in your classroom who come from underrepresented backgrounds, who may not have traditionally even interacted in the ways we just talked about? That's a big portion of what critical communication pedagogy is as well. It's, it's the critical aspect is really understanding power. The communication aspect is understanding the meaning of messages and how to communicate them well. And then the pedagogy aspect is effective teaching, the, the art of teaching. So in, in that vein, what I try to do is, to, to the best of my ability, and, and help my students to do this as well, understand that not everybody has the same background. Mm-hmm. Everybody comes from a different place. We're not a homogeneous institution, and, and thankfully so. I don't think we want that. It'd be pretty boring. It, it, it would be a boring place, and, and it, it would be a place that lacks creativity and, and innovation and, and all of those things. And so we have to be very attuned to our students, their backgrounds, where they come from. We're talking about different genders, ethnicities, income levels, sexual orientations, all of these things. And, and we have to allow them to find their voice in the classroom. And so a lot of that comes from, like I said, this dialogic interaction, giving students the opportunity to share their perspectives, to share their backgrounds, to share where they are coming from, because they experience things differently. You know, a lot of people assume that we experience an issue the same way, and we we don't. We just don't. And and all of our backgrounds are beneficial to us, but we have to give everyone a a chance to share our experiences. And everyone learns from that. They have to have a voice, and it is absolutely critical. And be part of forming what uh, what you talk about in your classroom. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's how knowledge is constructed. You know, if you look at research on research, in other words, research teams who, who are 
homogeneous versus heterogeneous, more creativity, more innovation comes from heterogeneous groups. And so it's, a, it's the same thing. And, and students learn from each other when they're able to, to share. Well, let's switch to uh, the past few years. We've gone through the COVID pandemic. It's July 2022. It's not over yet, but the world is far more normal. We've had more normal experiences this last semester. We will this fall semester, most likely. All of that being said, what changed in terms of how you communicate with students in the pandemic? Yeah, the pandemic certainly presented a lot of difficulties. And at the same time, it, it challenged us pedagogically to grow as as teachers, as instructors, as, as professors. We had to determine it, in, in a, very quickly how are we going to reach our students at a time when we were on Zoom and, and meeting, you know, synchronously but not face-to-face. And so the, the medium changed. That's something we talk about a lot in my public speaking class. We mm-hmm. communicate through a variety of, of mediums. And so what's important, I, I think, during that time, and, and even now when we're using more technology than maybe we were pre-pandemic, is trying to use those different mediums effectively. You know, how do you engage students in, in dialogue and in other ways when you're in an electronic environment? And it certainly can be done. And that's something that that I learned, and I had to um, mm-hmm. I had to gain instruction and, and read about. But but it's something I think that that helps us today. Sometimes when you're presented with a challenge, not that COVID was was anything we wanted to go through, certainly. But when you're presented with a challenge, sometimes you are forced, I guess, to come up with innovative ways to adapt. Yes, always uh, good things tend to come out of adversity whether you like it or not. So tell us, if you look at your classroom today or the one for this upcoming fall semester, how's it different than it was three years ago? Yeah, I mean, there's there's certainly a lot of similarities. I know my students certainly enjoy being back face-to-face. Sure. That was something students really missed that we, we learned. I do think, though, that I'm, I'm employing more technology. I'm employing more ways to interact with students. Virtually, I'm, I'm finding that there are ways that I can connect with students. If I can't meet a student on campus a certain time, maybe their schedule didn't work out, it used to be that we had to put that off. Mm-hmm. Now I can I can schedule a, a Zoom meeting with them or I can do something like that. Sometimes we found that public speeches can be delivered via Zoom or via, via other technologies. They could be uploaded. So there, there's a lot of different things that, that can be done. And I think Students recognize, too, that they become more adept with some of these technologies. And again, technology is a tool, and as long as you have to figure out if, if this is something that can be used in a way to benefit students pedagogically or not. Well, let's talk about, I'm going to switch to your research. You study something called neoliberalism. Tell us what that is. Neoliberalism is... This is where I talked about how I was able or how I desired to marry the study of communication with economics. Neoliberalism is an economic philosophy. So the first thing I want to point out is when we say neo, when we say liberalism, sometimes we think of political philosophies. We think of liberal versus conservative, and, and that's not what we're talking about here. Neoliberalism, we're talking about the liberalization of markets, of economic markets. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about the complete or at least the move to completely deregulate markets. This is We always lived in a capitalist system, or at least in the, the most recent history. 
what changed in about the 1970s is we sort of moved from capitalism to sort of a, a form of hyper capitalism and that's what neoliberalism is at its core is hyper capitalism it's the idea that we now live in a state where we are in competition with each other in so many different ways mm -hmm. so everything that we do is defined by the market it's defined by consumerism and what happens in this and it's it's also defined by an idea of extreme individualism mm -hmm. and that's what this system inculcates there's nothing wrong with competition mm -hmm. you know you think about my son is in a basketball camp right now at, at Penn State Barron he's competing in basketball you know we, we compete in a lot of different ways but what neoliberalism does this hyper capitalist state is it creates a, a situation in which we compete against each other to an extreme extent so I'll give you an example it sure. used to be up until the mid-1970s, it was an economic law, basically, that as productivity rose in corporations, so as, as employees innovated, as they contributed to productivity, as profits rose, wages rose at the same time. Okay, so they were rewarded for their work, basically. Across the board. Across the board. It was, a, it was basically considered an economic law. What happened at the dawn of the neoliberal era is companies started to realize we don't have to pay them for that. We can require that people work 60, 70, 80 hours a week. We can force that productivity and we don't have to pay them because they are disposable in some ways. Mm -hmm. And if they don't want to do it, we can get somebody else who will. And so that's how what's contributed to this really huge wealth gap in our country where an extreme amount of or a small amount of people control an extreme amount of wealth we have a lot of people who are in extreme poverty noam chomsky has a book called profit over people and i think that really describes it well that profit is more important than the social contract that used to exist between corporations governments and other things and and people in the last few years are, are you seeing any reversal i mean clearly there's a, a much greater awareness now of the uh, the wealth gap and the the effects of that. And I, I think the pandemic has changed the labor market. Now, this may be temporary. There's just a lot going on. It's even changed everyone's attitude over the last several years. So I'm asking you, you know, to prognosticate a little bit. Look at the future. What do you see? Yeah, well, I, I hope that what's, what we're seeing now will, will continue. What we're seeing is is people during the pandemic have realized that I don't have to work for meager wages. I, I am worth more than that. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I have self-worth that's greater than that. Those are things that have happened. Wages have certainly increased in a lot of, lot of ways. I hope that's something that will continue. Mm -hmm. it's, it's difficult to say. You know, it's difficult to say. I, my, my hope is that it will continue. Power has a way of overcoming some of those things unfortunately power works in covert and and overt ways works oftentimes surreptitiously to kind of work around the system to to enact to maintain and exert itself so it's, it's difficult to say i think you've got to change some things systematically we could spend hours upon hours on this and i realize there are a lot of different viewpoints but i'll, I'll give you one quick observation when i lived in the czech republic i just noticed that they didn't have to tip their waiters and waitresses. And when I talked to people, they said, oh, no, you know, unlike America, we pay 
people a decent wage. And while the the overall wage structure there might have been different, and you could argue lower, I saw it, it actually had a different kind of uh, living standard than you might have anticipated by just looking at that number. Now, uh, I'm not arguing for one or another, but I'm saying it is what you value. And if you, I think you have to change some of those ultimate things that we're just not going to say, well, because you're in this type of job, it has such a low value. We're, we're never going to pay more than that. Exactly. Exactly. And that's just it. It's valuing all kinds of employment. You know, everyone has worth. Everyone has value. And, and that's really a lot of what this is about. Henry Giroux writes about this, and he calls it the politics of disposability, as if some people, because of their job or whatever it is, that they're almost disposable. And that's a really deleterious situation. Yeah. And, and that's something that, that we want to work against. Let's uh, talk about uh, this area of post-truth that you study. And I think this comes into the discussion as well when we hear about things like fake news and the like. So what's the study of post-truth? Yeah, post-truth is definitely a problematic situation. It's not new. That's the interesting thing. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think of it being kind of a new phenomenon. Actually, if you look at the first newspaper in the United States, around the year 1690, it was basically shut down for fabricating or sensationalizing <laughs> sure. stories to sell newspapers. You know, so, so it's certainly not a new phenomenon. But what is new is there are so many ways in which to disseminate news or, or to disseminate post-truth. And this goes back to power as well. Mm -hmm. It's th those who disseminate or propagate fake news or post-truth messages are those who either want to gain power or maintain power or are afraid of losing it in some way. So we have so many different ways of disseminating post-truth messages with the internet, with social media, with all of those outlets. And the, the problem is, psychologically, people read these things and they believe it and they internalize it. And there's kind of two reasons for mm -hmm. this. And I was, uh, I'll talk briefly about this. But post-truth is the idea that we privilege belief over fact. So when you internalize these beliefs, your beliefs become almost sacrosanct. And you do not want to give up those beliefs despite the evidence that you may hear from, from experts. And so one of the reasons, there's a great book called The Death of Expertise. Mm -hmm. And Oftentimes, people today don't trust experts. Oh, no. There's an assault on expertise all the time. There's an assault on it. And there's and some valid reasons as to why, by the way. But go, go ahead. Sure. And, and experts can be wrong, but Correct. they are wrong less than sure. you are, if you will. Yes. You know? and, and that's the thing that people have to remember. And the other reason for it is group identity. And it's something we study in, in communication. We associate ourselves with groups. It could be a political group. It could be any kind of group. It could be a special interest group. We associate ourselves with groups, and this is evolutionary. The problem is, and then we learn what those groups believe. We internalize what those groups believe, and then we don't want to do anything to distance ourselves or alienate ourselves from those groups. So we're willing to then disseminate and believe ideas that are completely fabricated, that are completely false, simply because our group believes them. Yeah. And by the way, I'm not arguing at all against uh, expertise. In fact, no. my, my point is I think a lot of people don't really even understand when they're listening to experts and the limitations of perhaps what they're saying, and that gets lost in the conversation, and they take a small slice and, of course, then go down a path. So, But let me ask you this. How do we bring it back? How do we 
How do we undo this increasing amount of post-truth or fake news that we see? Is there any way to put the genie back in the bottle? It's very difficult. There's actually a ranking of countries that do a really good job of this or how to how they teach students to recognize post-truth. And as you can imagine, Finland is always, they're, they're always at the top of, of many lists in K-12 education, and they're, they're way up there. What we need to do is a couple things. One is learn to examine sources. We have to take the time to examine. Mm-hmm. When I teach public speaking and when I te- teach persuasive speaking, we have to have sources that are credible, that are objective, that are verifiable, that are accurate. If you don't, you can present information that is completely false, that's fabricated, it's disinformation, and your audience is going to deem you to be untrustworthy. So we have to learn to examine sources. We have to take the time. You can't just read something on Facebook or on Twitter and just say, oh, yes, that's the the truth. I'm just going to believe that. And the other thing is we have to learn to respond or at least recognize the fact that these are messages created with an intent to maintain power. Mm-hmm. So why we have to after we've identified them, we have to we have to have discussions with people and, and dialogue with people who may believe things that are untrue and, yeah. and talk to them and present evidence. And we have to understand the degree to which we can persuade as well. There's a lot that goes into this. Some audiences are very defensive. Mm-hmm. And, and that's that's a problem. Some audiences are compliant, meaning they'll just believe you, they'll go along with what you say, but they'll just kind of do it for a short time. We want audiences to have a critical response where they're really willing to judge the strengths and weaknesses of your message. So dialogue, discussion will get us a long way, but we can't ultimately convince everyone, unfortunately. Yeah, and I think these are the things we have to teach our students. And, you know, you hit on this point News travels fast, and you see this happen all the time. Somebody reports something, and then you even see credible news sources just simply taking their story and repeating it. And this seems to me to be a particularly difficult problem without seasoned reporters sometimes having the time. And there, there are reasons why. I mean, they're, they're under a lot of pressure. They're trying to get the scoop. Their financial you know, model of their business is changing. But, boy, the way bad stories get out there, it's amazing to me. Absolutely. And, and some of it is done intentionally, and some of, it's, some of it is more of a, a form of misinformation, where it's sent out so fast that it's just things that are misunderstood. It's almost like playing a game of telephone, where you, the message starts out on one end, and by the time it gets down the line, it's something else, or it's misunderstood. And so we kind of have to be really attuned to the credibility of these messages and, and understand that not everything you hear yeah. is is truthful. And I think understanding how to challenge them, because a lot of the people who, who propagate these, they, they really become very good at not answering the, the question. You, you can see this quite often now, and it's become an art form. Yeah, very much so, very much so. Politicians, others have gotten very adept at moving around a question, so they make you believe they've answered it, but they really haven't. I'd like to hit one other subject that I think is just so appropriate for this, and that's the idea of free speech. We hear about it all the time, and it's really interesting to watch there as well because as you watch two polarized sides, whether you call it left, right, I say up, up, down, it doesn't really matter. The more they diverge, the more they seem to actually violate the principles of free speech and be willing not to follow what I consider to be liberal traditions in the the United States I'm not asking for a whole lot of political discourse on this, David, but, you know, how do we teach our students the principles of free speech? Is this something we should be doing on a college campus? Yeah, I mean, free speech is is very important, and having 
discourse between and among students, between and among professors, bringing speakers to campus who have different ideologies, different viewpoints, is very important. I think we have to understand that this all revolves around the idea of civility. And so mm-hmm. we have to be civil communicators. We have to, we, we, we actually in the communication department have a, a competition called the Civil Tongue Speaking Competition. We do it every semester. And we delve into difficult ideas such as this. We, we give students a contemporary, a timely topic something that doesn't have a clear answer, that may have different sides to it, different political bents, whatever. And we ask them to debate it and do it in a civil way. And then we, we have a judging panel. People come to view this. And so those are the kind of things that we want to instill in our, in our majors, in our students here at Barron and, and certainly in the communication major. Well, I love this civil tongue competition that you have. And you have to invite me. And, I, you know, sometimes when we talk about civility, there are those who will say, you're using civility to to limit my speech. And I think that that can be done. But I also think it's very important to understand this concept of you may have to listen to the most repugnant, horrible thing. It doesn't mean you have to stand around and listen to it. It doesn't mean that you have to agree with it. It means you can you can walk away, but you don't have to necessarily fight over it, uh, you know, or get into an uncivil situation. Yeah, and that's certainly true. I mean, we have the ability to to react to speech that is ugly, that is marginalizing, that is subjugating. And, and that's, again, what a lot of my work is about. And it's, it's, that kind of speech is not okay. You know, there, there, is, yep. there is a limit. There's a limit to what speech can do or should do. There's a limit to what people can say. And, and it's, it can be a fine line, but I, for, for me, it's when speech marginalizes or is, yeah. is hegemonic. When it subjugates people, that's when it's when it's problematic, right? And there are limits, and you know we could spend a tremendous amount of time about the legal definitions and the like. And you're right; those are not the things that we want to encourage. But I think we do really want to make it, our students get into these situations where they have to debate with others. And yes. uh, you know, I, I won't go on too much longer. But what I've heard from students over the years is that they don't even talk to the other side sometimes politically. Because they don't want to have that discussion. And that I do find dangerous. We ought to be able to talk about politics. We should be able to talk about gun control, abortion, whatever. We may have very differing beliefs, but we need to have those discussions. We, we need those discussions. And, and honestly, that's why, in a lot of ways, we have so much divisiveness politically now. Because people don't talk to each other. Or they just yell at each other. Yeah. You know, and, and you don't have discussions, and I'll use the word again, civil discussions with each other. It doesn't even mean you'll come away agreeing with the other side, but at least you understand why they believe what they do. And that's what we really want to do. That's a critical response. That's, a, that's what a critical listener will do. Well, we've come to the end of our time. Is there anything else you would like to add? I just really appreciate being here today. This was a lot of fun. I enjoy this podcast. I listen to it a lot myself. I, I think it's really great. I Going back to our earlier discussions about why I came to Penn State Barron and, and why I really enjoy being here, it's it's the idea that it's a place where teaching and research is valued. And I think I talk to parents oftentimes of prospective students that may be on campus and maybe in the community. And what I always tell them, and it's something you wrote once, that we are Northwest Pennsylvania's research institution. Yeah. You know, I thought that's such an excellent way to put it. Because 
our faculty are not only great educators, but a lot of them engage in research that expands and extends what it is that we teach. And so students here really get a, a really excellent experience and can even engage in research themselves. And so that's why I, I think Penn State Barron is, is such a great place, and it, it's been a, a very good fit for me, and I'm very happy to be here. Well, so well said. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation. My guest today has been Dr. David Kale, Professor of Communication and Chair of our Communication Program here at Penn State Barron. Thank you. Thank you.